0: Well, for sure. I mean, it's not the Discipline Olympics. I don't think we want, (laughs) I don't think we
1: want just one. Welcome to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Haley Bannock from the University at Buffalo and pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Matt Fox from Boston University. Welcome, Matt. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. So good to be back for another episode.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And I have to say, because I know you feel passionate about this topic, I am drinking a delicious iced coffee. And you and our guests today have some pretty strong views about hot coffee versus iced coffee. So I'll give you a little um, teaser. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Rosella from University of Toronto. And both her and Matt strongly dislike iced coffee so i think we should discuss that a little bit before we get into it why do you hate it so much
2: why why would you take perfectly good coffee and ruin it with ice
1: because it's 30 degrees or 90 degrees outside and it's too hot to be drinking hot things
2: laura laura explain it to her
1: so
0: don't you have to put a ton of sugar and stuff in it to make it taste good when it's cold? That's my problem with it. Coffee to me only tastes good warm. And as soon as you cool it off, you got to load stuff in it to make it taste good.
1: No. So I have a Cuisinart coffee maker that I use and I add extra scoops of coffee to make it super strong. So then when I add my ice cubes, it waters it down a bit, but it, then it's at a good status rather than too strong cup.
0: Oh, my grandmother's turning in her grave. I can't.
2: It's so bad. It's so bad. I, I have a second question for you, though. You said you had a Cuisinart coffee maker. Is it? Is it stainless steel? Yes. I think we have the same coffee maker. And not only that, I, I was noticing the other day that every once in a while, I will see that coffee maker on TV shows that I'm watching. And it makes me so happy.
1: Yeah, it's basically the most useful kitchen gadget I have. Ten minutes later, you have a great cup of coffee. So this is... We should be sponsored by Cuisinart in this episode. So if anyone's listening and has a connection... Please, Cuisinart, reach out to us.
2: I don't know that that's going to happen, but I do want to go back to this um, appalling coffee situation that you have going on. Because, (laughs) you know, this isn't going to come out, unfortunately, for a while. It's not going to air. So by the time it'll happen, what I'm going to mention next will have already happened. But I heard that you went on another podcast, Haley, and discussed the fact that I don't like your terrible coffee. Is this true? Yes,
1: it is true, because I'm outraged that you could drink something so Doesn't hot. Doesn't that
2: break the code of podcasting host friendship right there? I mean, that is... <laughs> well,
1: that's that's what... Firstly, it was on Twitter, so, you know, it wasn't like a personal discussion between us. And secondly, it, you know, I felt like more people needed to understand that you only drink hot coffee, which is really But on strange. Twitter,
2: I could respond on a podcast that I was not on... I was not able to defend myself.
1: Well, all I basically said was iced coffee is a perfectly valid choice in the summertime. And this crazy dude in Boston really dislikes it and I can't understand why. That was the extent of it.
2: What I heard you said was that people who like hot coffee in the summer are losers and will always be a burden to society.
1: (laughs) I'll remember that. That's what I
2: heard you said. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard.
1: Well, I can pretty much say with absolute certainty that would be fake news, and you shouldn't trust everything that somebody texts you. I'm <laughs> Lisa mm. Bodner. Okay, <laughs> fair
2: enough.
1: Mm. <laughs> All right. So um, now that you know our coffee preferences, we're going to get into some more serious topics today. So Dr. Laura Rosella is here today to talk about data-driven public health or how we can use epidemiologic methods to inform public health practice. Laura is an associate professor in the epidemiology division at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Given the coronavirus pandemic that is currently going on, we're really excited to talk to her today about how evidence that's generated from our research can be translated into meaningful public health policy. She's part of this really cool team that developed a website called How's My Flattening, and it has an interactive dashboard that tracks COVID cases, deaths, and hospitalizations in Ontario. So we're really excited to welcome you today, Laura. Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. Uh, So as many of our listeners know, before we get into the hard stuff, the real hard-hitting topics, we like to ask a few, you know, general questions so our listeners can get to know us. So tell us, what's the craziest thing you've purchased since the pandemic started? So the craziest thing I've purchased is an assault bike, which
0: pretty much sounds like the name.
2: (laughs) An assault bike.
0: An assault bike. A type of assault bike. And it's a bike that the harder you pedal, the harder it is because it uses wind resistance.
1: Wait, so it's assaulting you. (laughs) It's assaulting you. (laughs) And it's
0: really, really hard, which is why it's crazy. But I absolutely love it for some weird reason.
2: It's a stationary bike?
0: It's a stationary bike, but... Because of the wind resistance, it's really challenging. So you burn a lot of calories in a short period of time, which is kind of what I needed because I
1: realized how little I move. Oh, me too. Me too. It's shocking.
0: It was, I I looked at my Apple Watch and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, just going to and from work, walking around the campus, teaching, teaching. And I was doing none of that. And I felt terrible. So I just needed something. And I don't know how we ended up at that. Have
2: you seen any data? You know, there's lots of data that's been put out on people's traffic mobility declining during COVID. But I would love it if they would publish the data from Apple Watches and Fitbits that shows people's personal movement decline in COVID. Or maybe for some people it's gone up because they exercise more because they're at home. But I don't know. For me... I mostly just walk upstairs and downstairs and that's only to get food.
1: <laughs> yeah. So counteracting the effect <laughs> of the exercise up and down yep. the stairs. That's right. And
0: yeah, I hadn't seen that, but I certainly you can see now that it's been about 5 6 months the pattern in in March yeah. and April the drop compared to all my historical averages and uh it's, it's awesome. It's really hard. It's very challenging. When I started, I could only
1: do a few minutes, but I've worked my way up to half an hour. Cool. So oh, good for you. That's really cool. Well, I definitely learned something new because I've never heard of an assault bike before. That's also a terrible marketing branding decision. <laughs> whoever made that it's bike. That's a terrible name.
0: Yeah, they have, there's different names. There's the air bike that emphasizes the wind resistance. It's also mm. known as that, but, um, it's great. Yeah. It sounds a bit friendlier.
1: Like... <laughs> Good. All right. Well, that definitely tops our one of our tops of, you know, weirdest things that people have bought during this pandemic. So tell us what's, you know, one movie you could watch or, you know, or TV show, watch rewatch over and over again, just to take your mind off work.
0: Yeah. For me, it's The Matrix. Mm. I love that movie. It's my favorite movie every time i watch it i get something different out of it and uh i hadn't watched it for a long time actually and then they just put it on netflix again and i watched it again and i don't know you just think about society and where we are in the world and you revisit it and uh just amazed at the effects so yeah i love the Matrix. red
2: pill epidemiology
0: that's right pretend i'm trinity mm-hmm. sometimes
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: That from time to time know. when we watch movies, right? No, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Makes sense. And, you know, if we could leave our houses at this moment and travel to any place, where'd you like to travel to? What's on your bucket list? Good
0: question. I mean, I have a lot of bucket list places, but I think the one that's really on my mind lately is I really want to go see old sc- uh, castles in Scotland, mm. like an original oh. Scottish castle. Because I've been, yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate. I've been a lot of places in the world, but I'm just fascinated about his, that historical era. And uh, yeah, I'd love to do that one day. One day. Hopefully one day. Hopefully there's some <laughs> Scottish epidemiologists listening that will invite me to give a talk one day.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say that. Just like me shouting out to Cuisinart, probably more likely is you shouting out to a Scottish person to invite you to give a talk about your fabulous research.
0: Preferably at a castle.
2: Yeah. yeah oh yeah of course i just want to make it clear i'm also available for any sequel to the to the matrix they want to do
1: wait sequel to the matrix or a sequel to a talk in scotland
2: no no the matrix
1: wait wasn't there already a matrix sequel
2: the matrix Two: electric boogaloo is
1: that what it was called no oh okay reloaded yeah wasn't, oh yeah it was the oh. same yeah <laughs> clearly laura is the <laughs> matrix expert on this
2: podcast somebody's gotta be Someone's yeah be. We're,
1: we're extra glad to have you now <laughs> all right so it's great to get to know you a little bit better and i love that our listeners get to see that researchers uh, and academics are real people too and we have interests outside sometimes surprising interests outside of our academic interests. So we're going to shift now into talking about some of your research and your expertise about the intersection of epidemiology and public health. And never more have um, we needed research that lies at this intersection. And so mm-hmm. I'm really you know, excited to learn more about this topic because I'm definitely more on the epidemiology and the methods side of things. And I really could use some more information about how to make my research relevant for public health. So I guess the first really broad question for you is what is the role of epidemiology in public health? Yeah. So when I talk to people about epidemiology, especially
0: maybe students who have never been exposed to it, high school students, I tell them McMahon's 1970 definition, which is that epidemiology is an applied discipline to solve practical problems. That's literally what's in the textbook. And so for me, public health is why we do epidemiology, and we're doing it for the purpose of improving population health and making an impact. And if we aren't doing it for that purpose, then why are we? So for me, they're very closely intertwined, and we often forget it's easy to get in our our little bubbles of whether we're in methods or we work in the applied space. It's the reason for being as an epidemiologist, and I think that's why a lot of us get into the discipline to begin with.
2: So I didn't mean that we to go in this direction. But since you brought up definitions of epidemiology, I have to ask you this question, because I put out a tweet at some point, I can't remember when it was in which, you know, I teach that epidemiology is the study of the distribution and determinants of diseases in human populations and the application of that knowledge to the control of disease. And then whenever I teach that, and then I say, but that last part, the application to the control of disease, is that really epidemiology? Or is that public health? And I'm not in any way suggesting that you're saying that epidemiologists shouldn't be involved in public health, but do you consider that action to be public health or epidemiology?
0: I consider it epidemiology personally, and I know not everybody does that, but I do think that you need to refine those methods to be able to do the action better. And so if you don't work on the methods and do the deep technical theoretical work, then you're going to have suboptimal action. And so there are people that go between more than others and some focus on one and the other, but I, I see them as, as the same. I know people talk about epidemiology as the basic science of public health, for example, right?
2: No, and totally fair. But wouldn't that imply that everything in public health is epidemiology? If the actual implementation of disease control measures are part of epidemiology? I mean, does that mean epidemiology is just the same is a synonym for public health?
0: No, I mean, it's not a synonym because in order to get the public health action, you need more than just epidemiology, but it should be at the root of it. In my opinion, it should be a very important part. But there's policy, there's social science, there's political influences. And so not all of that, unfortunately, is in the control of epidemiology. And so it's it's a core core component, but uh, not solely epidemiology. They're not synonyms for each other by, by any means.
2: OK, so there goes my, my quest for public health world domination, but okay. (laughs) You
0: can't do it without epidemiology,
1: so. Fair enough. (laughs) I think that fits really well with the idea of epidemiology as the basic science of public health, because it is a core component, but it's not the only component.
2: Well, okay, so but can we actually probe that a little too? Because people certainly say that epidemiology is the basic science, but what about the social sciences and, and behavioral sciences and economics and all of those other things that are also essential sciences for disease control?
0: Well, for sure. I mean, it's not the Discipline Olympics. I don't, think we want, I don't think we want just one. And actually, when we actually get it and we make progress, it's when all the disciplines are working together.
2: Now I'm going to come up with a Discipline Olympics symbol, just like the regular Olympic symbol. And I want a Discipline Olympics village to be able to live in. Not during COVID times, though.
1: Love it. But that would be super fun, a Discipline Olympics village.
2: You know what? This podcast is the official sponsor of the Discipline Olympics.
1: I look forward to participating. Mm I think that all of this really highlights that we as epidemiologists and as a field need to focus on this concept of knowledge translation. And really, if we just do our own research and don't disseminate it to the people that it will matter to, what's the point of doing the research? So what what do you think are the stumbling blocks for why more epidemiologists aren't engaged in knowledge translation? And how do you think we can get better at this, you know, as a field? Right. So For me, knowledge translation
0: starts and ends with empathy, actually. And I feel like just speaking from my own personal experience, you know, when I did my doctoral degree in epidemiology, I was immersed in methods and data and I came out thinking, great, use it. People, decision makers, use this. I finally got it. I solved your problems. And then I realized I actually was frustrated about the pace at which evidence was being used. And I said, I'm going to do something about this frustration. I'm going to actually try and learn about what's happening before I just start criticizing everybody. And so I did a postdoctoral fellowship where I tried to learn more about applied public health. And I, I learned about public health policy. And I did a project where I actually interviewed decision makers about how they use evidence in a public health emergency which is very relevant, actually, in today. Wow. And I did 40 key informant interviews with decision makers about how they use epidemiologic evidence. And from that point on, I think I developed a lot of empathy and my view of evidence and how I generate evidence was forever changed. And specifically, I started to understand a little bit about why people used or didn't use evidence and how myself as someone who's generating that evidence can actually approach my the, pro- the problems I solve and the way I present that knowledge a little differently to be helpful to their situation as opposed to just thinking that the answers are in front of them. Why aren't they using it? That's
1: awesome and really interesting. Tell us, and now I feel like it's a cliffhanger, like a to be continued. Tell us more about what you actually learned from those uh, stakeholder interviews.
0: Yeah, so I wrote it up, actually. It's published in Social Science and Medicine, 2013. And I mean, there's lots of learnings. But the big one is that, especially in emerging public health situation, you, you never have all the answers, but you have to make decisions. I think sometimes when we're generating evidence, we, especially if we're focused a lot on methods, we are saying, well let's make sure the methods are as tight as possible before we can proceed whereas they coming at it a different way we have to make a decision we have to act so in light of that how do we use evidence and i learned a lot about how pre-existing ideologies can interrupt your ability to deal with new evidence i learned a lot about how we sometimes avoid conflict and that can also be a challenge with emerging evidence and i learned this a lot of time decision makers have a lot of things to, to deal with it. It's exactly kind of what we were talking about in the beginning. So it's not, while I think epidemiologic evidence is so important, it's not the only thing. There are other factors, there's geopolitical factors, there's social science issues, there's other things, and they have to weigh the evidence altogether. So it's about being transparent and clear about what evidence is being used and why.
2: And that's really difficult to do in a pandemic situation. And you talked about using limited evidence and being able to make decisions based on the data that we have, even if it's not perfect. And I'm curious, how you're watching this whole pandemic unfold, particularly as we see unproven treatments be argued for based partly just on political expediency, but also based on really poor evidence. And the argument that I have seen is that we don't have the luxury to be able to wait for the perfect evidence. So we have to use this bad evidence to make decisions. And if that evidence really is pointing us in the wrong direction, those decisions are gonna end up causing harm. So what's been your reaction to watch this whole crisis unfold.
0: Yeah, I think on the on the treatment side, it's really problematic. There's a difference between acting against the evidence, even if it's not fully developed yet or fully formed, I would say, and acting when we don't have the body of evidence we would like. And maybe masks is an example of that versus taking a drug that may cause harm and looks like it doesn't work and go, and actively going against the evidence. So I, th- I think there's, there's quite a bit of differences there. I think what I'm realizing is how... How little we probably spend or have spent explaining what epidemiology is, what epidemiologists do before COVID. And so when we talk about the way that we routinely use evidence or the way that drugs are typically tested and the type of evidence that we need before it goes to market, you know, these aren't things we've just made up in the last six months. (laughs) These are based on 50 years or more of how we do medicine or how we apply interventions in public health health. And so I've realized, I think it's challenging to now come out and say, oh, this is how we're supposed to do things. Why weren't you listening to before? I'm not sure we were communicating what we were doing before and how the standards of what many people I think take for granted do. So I I think that's the one challenge.
2: And in some ways it's pretty strange that we haven't done that because, you know, you could tell me that there are lots of disciplines for which we don't you know, they don't spend their time going out and explaining to the world what they do. You know, physicists, I don't really understand what they actually do. But when it comes to public health and medicine, it's something that people are paying attention to on the daily, in that people are watching the news and seeing the latest study about, you know, this this food is good for you, this is bad for you, this drug is good for you, this is, you know, gonna be the miracle cure. And yet you're right, we don't spend a lot of times. And in fact, I would say many of us actually shy away from doing that kind of work because it's not what we were trained to do and it's not why we got into this in the first place. And so it does seem to me there's a bit of a disjoint there
0: yeah absolutely and i i think that there's a middle ground probably because i think as epidemiologists once especially when you do observational epidemiology and you understand how complicated it is you kind of are scared to speak in simple terms because you you say i can't it's just too complicated or it depends (laughs) meanwhile if we want to go full on with the complexity we've lost 90 percent of the room and so there is a middle ground that's that's been a little bit of our learning with some of these more interactive kt tools and with dashboards and data visualizations that help relay messages, small messages, little bites of messages in simple ways to try and engage people. But there, there are some concepts I wish we spent more time talking about, like selection
1: bias and measurement. Which... And absolute versus relative mm. risk, especially in this context where I just want to shout to people, the denominator matters. It matters so much. And, you know, that's, a, a, I think, another epi kind of nerd joke. But, um, you know, we all know that. But this is the first time that I know of that we need to spread the gospel that the denominator mm-hmm. matters to people. So they can interpret what they are hearing about, because if you don't understand that concept, the number you see flashing on your, you know, CNN screen at the bottom about so and so percent is is almost impossible to interpret. Exactly.
0: And and selection bias is one where, you know, if you don't know who's tested or who's entering their symptom in that app, you're, the information on the other end is almost entirely meaningless. Of course, you know, I'm telling you this and it's so obvious, but I don't think that as a discipline, we talk about these concepts in lay terms and engage the public in a routine basis when they say, oh yeah, of course, it depends who gets tested. Of course, it depends who has a mobile phone and wants to download the symptom tracker. It's not, of course. And, and what could we have done to make sure that we were having these conversations before.
2: Do you feel at all then like you are in a niche area of epidemiology or or do you think this is catching on and becoming a bigger percentage of epidemiologists than I think it is?
0: So I definitely felt like I was a niche early on. And it's more that I... Felt like i didn't quite fit in any box i love data and methods i absolutely love it that's that's why i love this discipline but at the same time i i had this burning urge to always have impact and i developed that empathy and so i kind of have this these people on my shoulder saying you know but really whose question are you asking and what impact is that even going to have and how are you going to make sure it gets to the people that need it but lately, I will say I've noticed a distinct shift, especially in the students coming in and seeking out epidemiology as a, as a career. They want to have impact. So their primary goal is they want to show that they've made their mark on the world and they really like the KT aspect of it. And so I, I think there's a shift to something that I would, I would have said 15 years ago when I was in this was a niche is now not a niche. And actually probably, you know, 50-50, the students come in, are this, is reson, this idea is resonating with them. That's great.
1: Yeah, that's really great because of people like you that lay the groundwork for their interest and a global pandemic that also sparked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just a tiny thing.
1: Just, you know, a little bit of A, a little bit of B, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Mostly me, but also the coronavirus
1: pandemic. But there's... Yeah, that's, that's a perfect summary of, of what's going on right now. So I, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago before um, we we're, you were saying that when you are evaluating the evidence that's in front of you, and it's not perfect evidence, you might have to evaluate evidence differently for masks versus, you know, a treatment that you give someone that could cause actual harm. So would you say that in evaluating that kind of evidence to make policy, you have to keep a, a big picture or an eye on the potential harms of those kinds of recommendations, obviously the evidence of efficacy, but potentially more importantly, whether or not there are harms? I mean, absolutely.
0: I mean, and I think the one thing that I would say we don't do very well is we make explicit what our risk mitigation approach is. So when we're approaching a situation like this, what's our goal? Is our goal to make sure we have as few cases as possible? And because it's a very serious illness and we we want to get as close to zero as, as possible. Is our goal to make sure that those are at risk of complications are protected? Is our goal to protect health system capacity? Is our goal to make sure we don't have a mental health crisis? On and on and on. You could take any one of those outcomes, which is relevant for COVID, and say, well, which one am I actually trying to optimize? And you have to be explicit. You have to say that out loud. If you're a decision maker, you have to write it down. And maybe you have to argue about it as a society and say, no, that's not what I want. We want to optimize this. And then from there, can you answer the question that you just said? Because then maybe, yes, we're taking the precautionary principle on this because that aligns with what we're actually trying to optimize with our goal. I think our challenge, it's like vague research questions, right? Impossible to design a study, impossible to answer. And then when you get to the end of your analysis, you don't even know what to do with it. We have pretty vague risk mitigation strategies and early on, I, I can see that, but maybe now it's time for us to just say what we're trying to do and make sure given what we're trying to do, our actions are trying as close as possible to match that. And then you can do the, the benefits and the risks that you were mentioning.
2: And so doesn't this go back to the the discipline Olympics that you mentioned before? Because, you know, it seems to me that part of the problem that we got into early in COVID was the fact that as epidemiologists, we were called upon for advice on what to do. And our focus is we want to minimize deaths. And we're not at all focused on the impacts on the economy when we are wearing our hats as epidemiologists, when we are, you know, just regular people in the world. We also think about the economics and we think about the mental health and we think about our kids being at home. But But when we're asked as epidemiologists, our focus is on saving lives. And so it does seem to me like there is a challenge in trying to gather together the best available advice based on the evidence that is in existence, but also understanding what the perspectives are.
0: Yeah, well, that's why that first step, that's why writing the research questions is the hardest part. That's why defining your risk mitigation strategy is the hardest part, because you have to get in touch with the values of the society. You have to get in touch with all different types of disciplines. And I will say that I, I actually don't know if every epidemiologist believes that reducing cases and, you know, reducing deaths is number one, because a lot of them will say, well, the economic downturn that's coming is a social determinant of health. And that's going to cause a lot of deaths and
2: morbidity as a result. So
0: I think it's I think it's more complicated than that.
2: No, I, I certainly agree with you, though I would, I would still put those in the category of ultimately thinking about health as opposed to thinking directly about the economy. But you're right. I mean, I, I do think There were epidemiologists early on who said that shutting down the economy was going to lead to health problems that we needed to be paying attention to. I do think there are also issues with heuristics that humans use in the way that we think about how to deal with a crisis that leads us to dealing with the most salient thing that's in front of us and thinking less about the long-term impacts of the decisions that we make. And maybe that's something that we can get past in, in the future, but we were certainly not prepared for in this outbreak. No,
0: absolutely not and and there is a, there's a time period to all of this and the, the values change over time and this is why we need people that are experts in, in ethics and all the other disciplines together working on problems like this
1: so on on this podcast we've had some great guests like uh, Ellie Murray and Anna Westreich that have talked about this idea of the importance of formulating research questions and there's this very commonly discussed target trial framework now and I think it's it's a terrific framework for Thinking through how observational data can be used to emulate a you know a randomized control trial, but I have never heard anyone discuss as part of that framework what is going to be the impact of the research questions you are asking, which I find interesting, especially with what you were just saying, because when you are designing a trial, I've never done it, but I would assume when you're designing a trial, you have to think about the impact of your interventions on public health or whatever group you are trying to intervene upon. So, do you? Do you think that that is something that we should be considering adding on to this target trial framework as it's discussed? Right, because the
0: the thing about trials is you don't even start unless you know it's going to have impact and it's a well-defined problem that needs solving because of the expense, the logistics, the hoops, the registering, etc. So it wouldn't even be an issue whereas with observational epidemiology, it may be easy to ask uh, certain questions, but should you just because you should? Could you? And part of the, you know, why does this question matter? It's something that I ask uh, all the time, especially and and we might talk about this in the context of prediction modeling and in the context of any type of epidemiology. What, why are you doing this? And who's it going to impact? And how will it be used? I think the latter is really important. Who's who's going to pick up this evidence and say, okay, great. And maybe it's it's going to add to a body that eventually will change things, and that's okay. We don't want to discourage that. But is this question? actually important and we teach a grant writing course in our doctoral program and it's it's pretty technical but if you haven't sold me on that first part I don't want to read your study design I don't care about your fancy analytic method because I don't even think this is a real problem that needs solving and so we do try and spend time on on that part it's difficult but once you get over that hump it makes the writing the rest so much easier
2: yeah, having an important question, obviously, is is the key. And, and I would agree with you. We don't spend nearly enough time saying to ourselves, is this really a question that is worth answering? But I also wonder, you, we were talking about the, the trials and the, the target trial framework, and I do wonder whether we don't actually think about the bigger impact of things in trials and the target trial framework, largely because so much of the larger impact comes when you do something at scale. Yeah. And trials are not about scale. They're really about can we impact one particular aspect of the system in some way, typically a drug. But obviously there are more and more examples of economists using randomized trials and winning the Nobel Prize, even though we've been doing randomized trials for a long, long time, but that's fine. And, you know, it's very hard to to do a a larger societal randomized trial that would really tell us about larger impacts. I don't know if that's been your experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that some of the big societal questions, which we know are going to have population impact, are just not amenable to a trial framework. They never will be. We can't break them down to a potential outcomes framework. It just doesn't It doesn't work. And so I think that there's some pretty neat modeling approaches that, you know, the agent-based modeling approaches to look at social exposures that are getting us there and still getting us to think through the target trial in the same way. And so that's what I, I would say to that. But yeah, definitely not everything's amenable to a, a trial and uh, never will be. And I also want to say that implicitly, you know, we're asking a causal question, of course, when we're doing trials and some of the most useful work that you can do in epidemiology is descriptive, actually. And we don't spend nearly enough time about, on descriptive epidemiology. It, we kind of introduce it like it's so easy, but it can go wrong in so many ways. I mean, surveillance, right? We're looking at COVID cases over time and we've just talked about lots of examples where some basic things can really go wrong. And from that point of view you can have a huge impact because decision makers, 80% of what they use is descriptive for the most part, especially in a situation like this.
2: I could not agree more. And in fact, the most helpful early evidence from the COVID outbreak was descriptive epidemiology. And I would agree with you that other than surveillance, I actually think we don't teach descriptive epidemiology in, in a lot of programs at all. We just mention that it exists. Yep. We say epidemiology is the study of the distribution of determinants, and we're going to focus on the determinants and, and that other stuff. We don't need to talk about it because it's so easy, but it is not easy and it is so crucial. So I would just second what you say there. Yeah.
1: I think the fact that few people, I certainly am one of them, have never thought through how important descriptive epi is, is probably because we're not even really taught to think about it at all. So, you know, it's hard to understand the importance of something when it's not emphasized as such a critical piece of moving on to that determinants and critical piece for understanding what is going on in our world.
2: Will have either of you ever? had a doctoral student do a descriptive study as part of their dissertation.
1: Yeah, I definitely
0: have had them not their whole dissertation, but maybe a chapter. And I actually generally try and encourage, especially if it's a new topic, a really thorough descriptive study. And sometimes we don't publish them, we publish them as reports and we put them on our website or we disseminate them to public health units or whoever wants to use them because then they understand the data. They you know analyze all the different underlying subpopulations in the data, they understand the measures better. So Yeah, they can't get their entire dissertation on it, but it's usually definitely a component.
2: Well, I I bring it up because I have made it very clear that I think that dissertations should be allowed to include descriptive work. And then I finally had a student propose one. And my first reaction was, ooh, how is the the committee that approves this going to look at it? And that's a fight that I'm going to have to have. And also, do I actually know well enough how to advise somebody to do a really good descriptive study? I know there are so many ways that things could go wrong, but to actually know how to make it go right, I don't know. So I, I was surprised by my own reaction.
0: Yeah, it's a good question um, because a descriptive study can highlight a lot of issues and maybe you're focusing in on the measurement. That's what a descriptive study can be really great for focusing in on the measurement characteristics of whatever you're trying to look at. And so that can be actually really complicated if they go down that route. So, But it's not typically in our programs taken on. And so basic question, do you adjust for age in your descriptive studies?
2: No. But I think people do. A lot. I also think people use descriptive as a crutch, as a way of saying, I did all this statistical adjustment, but I'm not allowed to say it's causal. So I'll just say it's descriptive. But what I really mean is it's causal, but I'm not allowed to say it. Because again, if it were truly descriptive, you wouldn't adjust for all of those things because then it becomes meaningless for describing.
0: Yeah, we could go on and on about this. But uh-huh. it, but it's it's it highlights the reason as to why we need to think about descriptive epidemiology a lot more. So true. And th- that's where, a lot of these things go wrong, and again, when I talk to decision makers and policymakers, and I ask them before I start a study, "What are your questions?" Eighty to ninety percent of them are descriptive.
2: Okay, so we are going to start the Laura Haley Matt School of Descriptive Epidemiology. All right. Yes. Maybe maybe it's just a department. I'm not sure yet.
0: We need to come up with a better name because I think descriptive's got a bad rap. It does so, have a bad rap. Yeah, we need to come up with a more creative
2: precision descriptive epidemiology. <laughs>
0: Artificial intelligence, descriptive epidemiology.
1: That's a thing, that's
0: what unsupervised learning is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I just invented that and um, pretend like, you know, it's not a thing (laughs) because because I just came up with that right now. That's right. So since the early days of this pandemic, I know you've been really involved in the surveillance, some might say descriptive epidemiology and analytics related to data that's being collected. So in real time, what was going on and how did your epidemiology training help inform what data was collected or what evidence was generated when all of this was blowing up? Yeah. So in real time is
0: really tricky because we're not used to uh, analyzing in real time as uh, lots of observational epidemiologists. Maybe the data is one, two years old. We sit on it and we make sure you didn't have that luxury. So data was coming in, in all different forms and the completeness of the data and the fields that were collected were changing. So that's that's one big challenge. But I think the one thing, just going back to what I was saying earlier, is the ability to critically think through selection biases was so important because early on, at least in our context, was pretty much travel related initially. And the testing was really restricted to people that were symptomatic or with a travel history only. And then those testing restrictions got released over time. And so what was a positive in March is very different than what a positive meant in, in June or May or April even. So that I think was the most important aspect to be able to critically think through that. The other part that was very challenging real time is I think that people wanted certainty that we just could not give them. And so it's really hard as an epidemiologist, like it's hard for us in any time to be able to say, like, I feel really confident on this estimate I give you. But in real time, when you know the data are imperfect and you know that there's measurement and selection bias issues, that was a real challenge to try and communicate those in a way to say, like, this is what I think you can say out of this estimate, and this is what you can't can't say, but I know you need to move on and so I'm going to just tell you this. So I think that's that's the real tricky part. This is where we want to invest in measurement in peacetime. Right? And now you can say, see, this is why we actually need a, pub- a good, robust public health surveillance system. It's really hard to advocate for those things any other time of year. And
2: you mentioned selection bias as something that is really hard for the average person to understand, and we don't communicate it very well. And it does seem to me that we don't do a good job with selection bias of communicating not just the individual level selection biases, like who chooses to be in a study, but also there's so much information that is coming out around things that people want to know about. Is flying risky? for COVID-19. And, you know, the way we typically get information on these modes of transmission is there is an outbreak. We identify that the outbreak occurs, and then we trace it back to how did it occur. But of course, what we don't see are all the times when somebody is on a flight with COVID-19, and they don't spread it to anybody. And all we hear in in the news is, okay, it can happen on a plane. And suddenly you think, okay, therefore, it will happen on a plane. And I think we just don't do a good job of communicating those things.
0: No, I mean, selection bias, you you guys are both teach selection bias, it's kind of tricky to teach epidemiology students. So how do we communicate these concepts of selection bias more broadly to decision makers that may not have a background or even the lay audience? I think we could probably figure it out if we were motivated to do so. And I've seen the best examples of collider bias in COVID in terms of explanations that I've ever seen in any textbook up to now. So I think now that we're motivated to explain it to people, we're finding more creative ways to do that. I mean, these are critical thinking skills that, frankly, we should be teaching in in elementary school. Absolutely.
1: There was an article a little while back in the newspaper. I think I'm getting this right, but it was something like, 75% of children in Florida tested for COVID are positive. And I saw the article and I was like, oh, no, I can't send my kids back to school. And I am an epidemiologist who studies selection bias. And I still was fooled by a headline like that until you read through the article. And it's like they had to wait three hours in line and, you know, had to jump through all of these specific hoops. And then you really think about, okay, so who are these children exactly that are getting tested? And are they representative of all of the children? And, you know, only when you think through those issues do you begin to see the selection biases but sometimes they're not always obvious even to people that have training in selection bias which it's just a such a sneaky thing that selection bias it is. it's so hard to it's pick up worst. on sometimes <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> you know i think even people like my parents who are not epidemiologists they can think through measurement things they can think through you know they're intelligent and they can think through a lot of things but selection bias just doesn't jump out at you in the same way as those other problems do and even you know is it a group of 75 year olds getting tested versus a group of 35 you know those are basic concepts that a lot of people can understand but that selection thing makes it seem so terrifying 75 percent of children are gonna get it and that's not necessarily the truth that we know it at this point yeah
0: that's why it's number one for me is the biggest epidemiologic issue of this pandemic that i wish we had done more kt on (laughs) or knowledge translation on ahead of time
1: (laughs) yeah and i think what something that you mentioned earlier and something that we're all struggling with is we have to make decisions right now in the face of imperfect data and data that keeps evolving on us. And it feels constantly like something new is coming out and we're constantly learning still about this pandemic. So as a society, we have to make decisions about things like school opening, or as Matt mentioned, flying on airplanes or, you know, when is it safe to open gyms again and all these kinds of questions. So do we have answers to these? And if we don't have the data, how can we ever advise the public? What, what do we do in this situation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to give you a a nice easy answer but I think there's a couple of principles and these are things I actually learned from back to my uh, study my 2013 study and number one is transparency and when you don't know you have to tell people you don't know and when you're acting on evidence that's emerging you need to tell them that so that when you change and you update based on the changing evidence they're not thrown off. And we again we saw this with masks, and I think nobody was malintentioned with the advice on masks. They were going on based on what they knew earlier and what the state of the science was saying then. And then we start saying, "Oh, actually, it's different." Imagine how different that would have been in the beginning to say, "We actually don't know. We've never tested coronavirus and SARS-CoV two in mass before because it's a new virus." This is what we know from other viruses, but we're going to be continually assessing it. And then, as we continually assess, we update. And so, I think that's really critical it's just to be very transparent in that we don't know the answers and there's a there's a lot of unknowns but there are some risks that we do know about and we know we can do things about and so in that case we want, we want to feel confident that those things are in place you know things about distancing and things about uh limits on numbers in classrooms and ventilation etc so we want confidence confidence in that those things are in place and you know that's hit or miss whether they are or sometimes it's hard to tell and then the last thing is we need to be able to know when things are going off the rails because chances are they will at some point the cases are going to start increasing again they have in lots of places that we know quickly and we're going to act accordingly and what are those steps that we're going to take and so those are the things that people need to hear at least for me and not as an epidemiologist just as a parent and a person who you know cares about my community cares about my keeping my parents safe and my kids those are the things that I look for like I am not happy about the fact that we can never make risk zero and that there's there's going to be cases, but I can accept it and I can at least try and manage the risk with increased transparency. And, and sometimes there's a tendency to have decreased transparency when you don't know because you want, to have, you want to come out with all the answers. But that has the opposite impact. And we've seen this again and again in public health emergencies.
1: That last concept of knowing when things are going off the rails, I feel like that's really hitting me in the face right now as a parent you know, <laughs> yeah. facing these school decisions because I will give our school board a lot of credit here. There are very specific guidelines for when things need to be shut down again, Yeah. right? So, you know, there's there's these very specific bullets and parameters they've identified. And so as an epidemiologist, I say, that's great. I really appreciate that. But I'm also, I am an optimist, which maybe isn't warranted at this current time, but it is getting me through. (laughs) And so I'm also interested in the reverse. So let's say we open up schools and we do our masks for the kids. We do our distancing. They have plexiglass for the teachers. You know, let's say, we do all those things and we actually don't see that cases are spiking we actually don't see that our community rates are arising that much when do we get to move forward in the positive direction I need to hang on to the concept my kids are supposed to be in school two days a week right now like when can we do three four or five like is that is that something I can even think about in the future and so I like positive messaging as well in addition to the incredible importance of the what I'll call negative messaging or or going off the rails kind of concepts. How do you think about guidelines for safety in terms of opening in the reverse?
0: Yeah, so my positive, you know, I'm an optimist too. So the positive thing I hang on to is I just look how far we've come in six months. And we've actually come a very long way. It doesn't seem like it because we're still at home and we're still on Zoom. But the surveillance, for example, has improved dramatically. The guidelines have gotten much clearer. People are working together. Still a long ways to go, don't get me wrong. But I think the scientific investment on testing and eventually a vaccine is unprecedented unprecedented. So in the next six months, I'm very optimistic that there will be not just if things are going okay, let's keep going, but something new, a new tool that will help us manage, whether it's, you know, saliva-based rapid testing in classrooms, you know, some new ventilation, some other mechanism that helps us contact trace more quickly. I mean, these things are only getting better. And so as long as we're open to revisit the evidence, still be critical, make sure that we're not jumping too far ahead when something's not effective. I think that there's some reason for a little bit of
2: hope.
1: Yes, let's let's focus on that. Laura and I are optimists. Matt, would you say you're a glass half full or half empty kind of guy?
2: I would say I am a the glass is half empty and it's leaking and there's nothing you can and there's nothing you can do about it.
1: Oh dear okay well that's a problem for laura and i we're gonna have to have yep. another podcast on the importance of optimism positive
2: thinking but the great part is Haley, you are a the glass is half full and here's five ways that you could fill it <laughs> yes kind of person yeah,
1: that is so that's very between true.
2: between the two of us it works <laughs>
1: i'll just keep filling the glass while it leaks out <laughs> the bottom of your glass Perfect. Okay. I've learned so much today. So before we wrap up, I'd like to finish just with a quick game of true and false. And these are just short answer questions for you. You don't need to give a, a long explanation. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are. So the first question, results from a randomized controlled trial are the only data that are good enough to inform public health policy.
0: False. And uh, I could say a lot of things here, but I'll just say one. You can have a really poorly done randomized control trial with high risk of bias and a really well done observational study with low risk of bias. And probably the latter's gonna tell you more about what's happening. That's just one reason. I'm not even talking about external generalizability, but it's the first thing I teach my students about
1: uh, why I don't like the evidence hierarchy. Yes, I fully support that. The hierarchy needs to be kicked over and there's benefits and downsides to each of those different types of evidence all right number two knowledge translation for public health should be part of every phd program in epidemiology
0: yes and i think the reason it's not that everybody has to embrace knowledge translation you know full-on maybe even the way i do or others that do even more than me but we need to be aware of the tools out there otherwise we have no hope of even showing up in terms of how to create our evidence in a way that people are going to be able to use it so we need to know what the tools are we need to be able to work with people that have kt expertise we should be exposing our students at least to the principles of good knowledge translation.
1: No, I agree. And I think it it should be part of an intro epi course in the same way that, you know, we teach all these random little topics that are important to epidemiologists. It doesn't need to be a whole lecture, but it should be covered so students know that it's a thing at least. All right. And the third question, true or false, people should not wear masks in public because in March, at the beginning of the pandemic, this is what was being advised by our public health leaders.
0: And so we have to start being comfortable with reassessing our assumptions and evidence. And we actually do this all the time. It's just that we do this at a very slow scale. And so we don't notice it. We're usually not doing it in this rapid timeline. If you take any topic, we probably had as much scientific evolution as we had for something like masks. It's just that we're doing it in public on a much more rapid time scale. So of course, I encourage everybody to wear masks as much as possible. So, you know, very simple and, you know, effective measures to reduce risk.
1: That's cool. I look forward to somebody at some point in the future studying the evolution of a COVID related topic like masks in the six month period relative to some of the major public health accomplishments that we've had, you know, related to cigarette smoking or seatbelts. I've heard masks compared to seat belts before. It would be very interesting to see how compressed and how much progress we've made. I mean, I think that gets lost sometimes. And since we are the optimists, it's our job to point out how much progress we've made so yeah all those things
0: seatbelts everything had a lot of studies that pointed the other way early on and we just uh did it at a much slower time scale
1: yeah yeah exactly all right well laura thank you so much for joining us today i really enjoyed having you this was a great discussion about you know the intersection of epidemiology and public health and thank you for joining us it was great it was
0: my pleasure and thanks for having this topic i think it's really great i'm glad we all agree except matt
1: who's over there grumbling in the corner
2: (laughs) (laughs) i still think it's important you're just hopeless yes
1: Okay, good. I'm glad we, we've settled but something. At least there's
2: hot coffee. Exactly. Oh.
1: Well, my cold coffee is still cold in my mug, and yours is probably lukewarm by now because we were talking for an hour. So hot. Yeah, yeah, it oh. is.
2: It is.
1: All right. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference, from the American Journal of Epidemiology. We think if you like this, you'll also like that. We really appreciate you listening. Thanks for joining us and look out for our episode next month. Bye.